You know, a few days ago this week, I needed a little stretch break from my back-to-back Zoom calls. And so I stepped out and I went onto the, the balcony right outside our bedroom, aka my new home office, and I just took in the new spring day. And on the one side, as I looked out, there was this a magnolia tree in my neighbor's yard. And just like all around town, you know, it's starting to blossom and bloom. It's stunning. And then I panned, and there in our yard is our very well-worn, overused trampoline. It's always a little concerning when multiple times in a week the kids call for their dad to come with duct tape and needle and thread to mend it. But this is a, a big part of our sanity strategy right now, and so we love it. And then if you go a little bit further into our backyard, you'll see our garden. And this is Chris's favorite place. Chris loves to garden, and he has been dreaming about gardening since January. He's been buying seeds. And if you come to our home, if you were in our garage, you would find dozens of varieties of seeds that he started with warming pads and glow lamps, and there's pots all over our garage and under milk cartons in the yard. And he, as you can imagine, along with my kids, are not just welcoming spring, but they are willing it to come as quickly as possible. And typically, I, I would be in that place too. In a typical year, I, you know, as I see the, the grass first greening or the first leaves coming through on the tree, you know, that's the kind of year where you kind of get a second wind, right? And I think, okay, I can get through this school year, right? Or I, I can do it. I, I can endure the last bit of ice and cold. And I knew maybe this wasn't a typical year, and I was not having my best day when I looked at the beauty of that scene. And my transition-weary heart said, great, one more thing that's changing. Okay, and now I realize that as I said it then, and as I say it now, that it is it is absurd and ungrateful, and, and I felt that in the moment. I felt that conviction, and all the more so because this week, Palm Sunday, I have been digging into the scripture that we'll be opening together, and I've been sitting in the reality that the theme of Palm Sunday for the global church is a theme of welcome. Palm Sunday is all about welcoming the visitation of Christ into our cities and communities and our neighborhoods and homes and into what is and what will be. And I could not even welcome the new season. But Jesus was really tender to me in that moment. And he took me to a psalm that had come up earlier in prayer And as I thought about the reality, I remembered a question that sometimes pastor would ask me, and he'd say, Kathy, are you winning? And I don't know about you, but the reality of this week was there were a lot of days I was not winning. And I I want to be, all the more because I knew I was standing up here today to open the word with you 
But if I'm honest, I wasn't. And I want to be that missionary leader who is always a non-anxious presence saying just the right thing at the right time. And I want to be the super mom who is unfazed by school at home and five Zoom calls at once. And all the things, I want to be all those things. I want to be winning. But I wasn't. And in that moment, this word from Psalm 103 came to me. And this is a psalm that is written right to the soul. And it speaks to the soul and exhorts the soul in us to bless the Lord. To bless the Lord who forgives all our sins, heals all our diseases, redeems our life from the pit. And it's this verse in 1314 where it says that God has compassion on us. And it says specifically, he knows how we are formed and he remembers we are dust. I'm not sure this is meant to be a like pick me up kind of a psalm, but for me it just felt like salve for my heart. And I remembered back to 40 days ago, so many of us, we were gathered in this very room on Ash Wednesday. And we came forward and we received from our high school leaders the sign of the cross and ash on our foreheads and they reminded us to remember that we are dust and that to dust we will return. Traditionally in the church, it's the palms of Palm Sunday that are burned to make the ash that reminds us we are dust. And it was this tender, good word that sat in my heart. And I wrote a simple prayer. I want to just pray for us. If you relate to that at all, this is a journal prayer that I wrote called Welcome to Dust as we enter into the Palm Sunday story. I wrote, you know my form. You know my failures. You're welcome in my weariness. Welcome in my home, in my family. Welcome in my less than admirable, my unfulfilled best intentions. Welcome to my tight chest, churning stomach, brave face with brimming tears. Welcome to my can't hold it together until breakfast. To my self-absorption and self-pity, my fascination with my own comforts. Welcome to my paradox to my wanting to be so much like you, Jesus, loving until it hurts a little, but still dust enough to hurt a little the people I love. Have mercy on me. Welcome to dust. Hosanna. For me, when I think about Palm Sunday, it's actually brings up a lot of great positive memories from my childhood. And I would imagine not all of us grew up going to church. Maybe some of you, this is actually your first church experience, and we welcome you. We're so glad you're here with us. But for me, when I think about Palm Sundays of yesteryear, it's a very positive experience. And I think most of all, because it was one of those times in the year where, especially as a child, I was welcome to actively participate in and to join in the story of Scripture. And often, we would hand out palms kind of like this, right? And we would get a chance to wave them and to shout and sing. And, you know, as a child, I didn't think about things like, 
I wonder if these palms were sourced in a, in a responsible, ecological way. Or I didn't think about how parents felt about their children being given objects that they could flail around and whack their siblings with. I just thought, hey, I get to be a part of things. And I'm invited and welcomed to participate. I wish I had a palm for all of you. I wish we were together and could give you one. And I don't have palms, but all of us have these palms, right? So I'm going to push us. I want to invite you at home, wherever you're watching, if you're able, would you actually take a minute and stand up with me? So stand up. If you're with your family, get mom and dad up, okay? So I want you to stand up, and I want you to take your palm and just hold it up kind of like this, okay? Hold up your palm. And I want you to just wave it a little bit, like so. Maybe a little bigger. All right, look around, make sure that everyone's participating. Now wave it, and I want you to say, Hosanna, okay? Can you do that? Maybe this time with a little more gusto. Say, Hosanna. Well done, bravo. Okay, you can have a seat. Thank you for participating. And as a side note, hey, some of you all, just raised your hand in church for the first time. And the Lord sees you, even in your homes this morning. Yes, he does. Bless the Lord. Palm Sunday. It is a story that invites us to get swept up in it, to be a part of it. And we're going to go to our text, which is primarily in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John today. And before I take us into the word itself, I want to set a little bit of the context and catch us up. So last week, you might recall that Tom challenged us to get into a few stories that illustrate what it's like to cry out from the depths. And one of those stories was from the 11th chapter of John. And that's the context I want to give us because we need to really get the drama of this story as it's unfolding. Okay, so in the 11th chapter of John's biography of Jesus, we learn about this incredible story. So Jesus and his disciples learn that one of their dear, dear friends and partners in ministry, Lazarus, is ill. And, and they go, but by the time they get there, it's, it, they learn that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days already. And the crowds have gathered of mourners to comfort the family and remember Lazarus. And they're all gathered there. And Jesus asks to see where Lazarus is laid and goes to the tomb and asks them to take away the stone. And after some resistance, they do. And Jesus cries out to Lazarus and says, come out. And Lazarus comes out. And the crowds, they witness this miraculous resurrection power. And then Jesus actually involves them in the story and says that they should come and take the grave clothes off of Lazarus and let him go. And they see this and all those who witness this, so many believe. But some who witness this miracle also are concerned and John tells us that they go to the authorities and religious rulers of the time and they tell them what has happened. And these religious leaders, well, they've just had it up to here with Jesus. And this is the final straw. And the plot begins in earnest to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus too. And they know that there is a big festival coming to which every devout rabbi and Jew would surely come, and they begin to plot against Jesus. 
And that takes us to chapter 12 in our text. And if you want to grab your Bible, this is a great time, or pick up a phone and flip to the 12th chapter of John. I love to print off the scripture text and mark it up and study it. And so I'll be reading from the pages today. But we go to chapter 12, and we'll start our reading in verse 12. And just before that, we have this beautifully tender scene of Jesus being anointed by Lazarus' sister Mary with abundant and extravagant anointing oils, both celebrating the good gift of the resurrection they've experienced, and as Jesus says, foretelling of his imminent and coming death. And so go with me to the text then, starting in verse 12. John writes, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival, they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And we're going to pause right there because I really do want you to try to do everything you can to imagine this Palm Sunday scene with me. All right, so let's go to Jerusalem for a second. When you think about what we know of Jerusalem in this time, scholars tell us that Jerusalem at the time had about 40,000 people living in the city, okay? So a town of 40,000 people. But they believe at high festivals like this, as pilgrims came from all over the known world, that the population would have swelled to about 240,000 people. So imagine a really great tulip time crowd, all right? 200,000 people added to this teeming city. And as they come, they're coming because it's a festival, John tells us. Now, the festival that they're observing was first commanded by God to to observe and remember in Exodus chapter 12. So we're going to go and talk for just a minute about those festivals. All right, so the Passover feast is a 24-hour period, and that is a part of a larger seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in this remembrance, the people are recalling some profoundly important events for the nation of Israel. So in the Passover, they remember how God commanded them to put the blood of a slain lamb over the doorways of their home. And in doing so, the plague that was sweeping through Egypt, taking the lives of firstborn sons, would pass over their homes. This plague that was sent to loosen and unlock the grip of the hard-hearted Pharaoh who had enslaved the people for four centuries. And after the Passover, the scripture tells us that God commanded them to gather their things so quickly that they were told, don't even let the yeast work in your bread. Don't even let that bread rise. Gather everything and flee from Egypt. Hence the remembrance through unleavened bread at the time of the Passover. So these crowds are teeming in gathering here in Jerusalem. And now continue to imagine with me this scene as I keep reading, picking up in verse 13, where John writes that they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. That's a quote from Psalm 118. John writes that Jesus found a young donkey and said on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. 
And then John does this great thing in his text. He has this little aside with us as, as the audience. And he says, at first, the disciples, they, they didn't understand all this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Okay, so pause. So what is John talking about there in the text? Well, he's alluding to the signs of this event that point to the reality that this is not simply the welcome of an important and prominent figure, but this is the welcome of a king. There are four clues in John's account and in the other gospel accounts that tell us he's writing the story of a royal welcome. And I want to take us to those four clues that we see in these gospel accounts. The four clues are a gate, a young donkey, a cloak, and a palm. All right, those are the four clues that this is a royal welcome. And I want to talk about each of those from the text just a little bit. So the first is the gate. And in some of the other gospel accounts, we have the detail that Jesus enters through what's known as the Eastern Gate or the Golden Gate. It was the gate in closest proximity to the temple and the one in which they expected Messiah, the king, to return. So he enters through this gate and then the people would have seen Jesus arriving on a donkey. Okay, now the cultural background is really critical to understand here because we might assume that this is just about the humility of Christ or that it's maybe a little understated, but it would have been known and recognized by the people that royalty comes on a donkey. Uh, a mighty ruler uh, or a military victor might come on a horse or chariot, but the king came on a donkey and a young donkey that had not yet been ridden. And there's Old Testament texts that call that truth that John quotes, right? The third clue is the cloak. And now, John's account doesn't capture this as much, but the other gospel writers tell us that the disciples put cloaks on the donkey for Jesus to ride and that the people, as they come out, actually take off their garments and lay them on the path before Jesus. Again, not simply an act of kind of chivalrous welcome. This was a sign of submission, to King Jesus. We have examples of this too in 2 Kings, of the King Jehu being welcomed with shouts and cloaks being thrown down. And that takes us to the fourth sign, which is the palm. Now, at the time, the palm customarily represented victory. Often, athletes would be given laurels or crowns made of the palm leaves. And it was understood by those who came that as the palms were waved to welcome Jesus, they were welcoming King Jesus. So we have the four signs unfolding in the story. But what you don't necessarily see right away in the text is critical for us to understand, and that's that in the midst of all this jubilation and exulting over the welcome of this Messiah, of King Jesus, that there's this undertone in the story. There's this ominous sense of foreboding in the city. Because there are other people that are part of this story. 
For example, we have the Roman rulers of the day. So the Romans would have found themselves being very concerned every time the Jews would gather in large numbers, wondering if there would be some kind of uprising or threat to their power and rule. And so they were watching very carefully as things unfolded. And then you also have the Jewish and religious leaders of the day. And they too were not happy with what was unfolding. They were worried about losing their place, the temple, and the roles in which and the comforts they'd gotten used to, the privileges under Roman rule that didn't apply to all their people. But they felt confident that Jesus was starting to undermine their place. And they were nervous and threatened. And so you see how this tension is starting to unfold in this dramatic moment. The city is a tinderbox. It's waiting to explode. On the one hand, you have people. Can you imagine his disciples in this moment, right? They're probably thinking, finally, our Jesus is getting what he deserves. The worship and praise of the crowds and the people But others are watching and saying, Jesus is about to get what he deserves. Right? Do you see that tension building in the story? And I want us to look for a second, go back to the text and look at that crowd a little bit closer and even start to situate ourselves in that crowd of 240,000. So we're going to pick up our text in verse 17, where John writes, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. This is the group in the crowd that I call witnesses. All right, so they have seen the resurrection power of Jesus raise Lazarus. They've seen it, and they're spreading the word. And then in 18, John writes that many people, because they'd heard that he'd performed this sign, went out to meet him. And this group I call the seekers, right? So they've heard about this Lazarus being raised and they want to see Jesus for themselves. And they're coming out in masses to seek Jesus. The third group is in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world goes after him. And the Pharisees are among this group of people feeling fearful and threatened of their place and power. And I call them the plotters. And then the last group that it's interesting John highlights, it's actually a subgroup for us. And he writes in verse 20 that there were some Greeks among the crowd who went up to worship at the festival. Now, the Greeks would have been seeking Jesus. In fact, John writes that they came to the disciples and Philip specifically and said, we want to see this Jesus. And now these Greeks were likely, they had come to worship, they were God-fearers, but they were a people who had always been kind of kept at arm's length from the heart of the community, from being really welcomed into the people of God. But they were so hungry to see Jesus. They sought him out most actively. And it's fascinating to me that it's actually to this community, in this moment, that Jesus speaks for the first time in our account from John's gospel. What does he say? And before we look at that, start to think, if you would, for just a minute, I want you to start to imagine if you were in this crowd, if we're around the world, we're reenacting this Palm Sunday story and you're in the crowd, where would Jesus find you? Witness, seeking, 
feeling fearful and threatened, where would he find you? So it's at this moment that Jesus finally speaks into the story, and I, I love this. Starting in verse 23, if you're following along, the text tells us that Jesus replied, and he says this, he says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Do you remember, this is the story that Phil told us a couple weeks ago in his message. This is where Jesus speaks of that kernel of wheat falling to the ground. And he invites people to join him, saying anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servants also will be. And in 27, there's this really uh, poignant moment where Jesus says, his soul is troubled. Now, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. No. For this very reason it was that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And this hour, it's so important because throughout Jesus' ministry, as he's performed these miraculous signs and wonders, he has often done them and then said, don't tell anybody quite yet. It's not my time. It's not time for everyone to fully know who I am. And yet in this moment, he says, the hour has come. This is the moment. And in that kind of insight into his own heart and soul where he acknowledges the trouble, it feels like this foreshadowing of Gethsemane and his cries in the garden. He says, what shall I say? Shall I say, Remove me from this trouble? Save me from this hour? No. And he prays that prayer, glorify your name. I'm so struck by that prayer, which is really the second of two prayers in this scene we've looked at, isn't it? The two prayers we've seen so far. The first one was the crowds, they were crying out, Hosanna, save us, we pray. And then here Jesus prays a second prayer. He says, glorify your name. I had a, a Zoom call with about 60, 70 other colleagues working in campus ministry around the country last week, and um, our uh, director of ministry in the field challenged us to consider if in this day, prayer might be our very best work. And something in me said, yes. I felt right that what if prayer is our very Best work. What if we did the work of crying out, Hosanna, and glorify your name this week? One of the questions that I put in our discussion guide that's on our website, if you want to use it with your families or small groups this week, is to think about what are the circumstances and situations that you're aware of that you want to, you feel compelled to cry out, Hosanna, rescue, save, O oh Lord, and there are many, right? 
Around this world, there are dire needs for daily bread and for health. And we've seen evil unleashed from our own hearts and around the world of of fear and racism and hoarding and ingratitude. And, And we cry out into those places, Hosanna, right? We cry, save us. Would you rescue us, King Jesus? And even as the trouble sweeps across our world and seems to be coming closer and closer, and friends, I believe it will come closer still, that like Jesus, we're invited, as he does, to welcome the path before us. And to say, come what may, Father, would you glorify your name? And and this prayer of Jesus is so phenomenal to me because when he looks out at the path before him, this isn't a path that's strewn with cloaks of adoration and crowds that love him. This is a path before him that will hold the stripping of his own garments for the mockery and shame This is a path that won't end with a laurel of palms, but a crown of thorns. There won't be cries of Hosanna, but crucify him. And yet he he goes and says, Father, glorify your name. And I wonder if that's part of the invitation in this week of Christ's passion. He's welcoming us. He's beckoning us. He says, welcome me as your king. Find yourself in the crowd. Be honest with where you are and prepare yourself to respond to a visitation from King Jesus, wherever you are. And then he beckons and he welcomes us and he says, come with me this week. Come with me to the cross. Come with me. And pray, Father, glorify your name. And as Jesus looks out among us, he has this incredible tender compassion for all of us and all those in the crowd. And the text culminates and ends with this plea from Jesus in verse 35. He says, you're not going to have the light much longer. Believe in the light while you have it so that you may become children of God. The light. Will you welcome King Jesus? And will you enter in the prayers of Hosanna and Father? Glorify your name as we enter into this most holy of weeks. As the worship team comes forward, I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, we do, with all we have, we welcome you. King Jesus, you remember our form, you know we are dust, and so we bring what we have to welcome the path that we're on, that lies before us. And Jesus, we do cry out, would you rescue, would you save Would you meet us in our troubles? And we think of those that we love and long to know you, King Jesus. 
And we say, Hosanna. And we also cry with you, Jesus, glorify your name. That whatever lies before us, that we would with you resolutely and filled with love say, your will be done. That we would receive the light you extend to us in this day as we prepare to enter this holiest of weeks. Welcome, King Jesus. Amen.